A Caribbean island that has a trade embargo imposed by the US, a left-wing government in the early 60s, and a subsequent dependency on its trade with the USSR. Sound familiar? Well, it's not Cuba, but the fictional island of Fumas, which is the setting of Ni Ayakwe Parks' second novel. 14 years after his first novel, Tale of the Bluebird, with several poetry collections in between, Ni has returned to the novel form to tell this trans-historical tale about a man called Junio, a man from Ghana hired by the Cuban government to revitalize vital crops, as well as a musician in a famous band. It's a novel described by Monique Roffey as extraordinary. Ni writes like the cousin of or some of a Chebi, and Garcia Marquez, high praise indeed. Elsewhere, he has won the Prix Law Bataillon, and he's a director, a poach publisher, flipped eye. Uh, a busy man, Nee, but thanks very much for joining us on uh, the Ripping Pages podcast. Uh, a pleasure. Excited to get into this novel. Basically, I wanted to create a, a fictional space in which anybody could belong. And that is a space that is... Um, I think the, the Caribbean carries in a unique way um, because unfortunately the original inhabitants of the Caribbean were pretty much wiped out. Everybody in the Caribbean is somebody who was taken to the Caribbean. So you could be of any hue in the Caribbean and nobody would say, where have you come from? So in a story about belonging, I felt that was a good spot to be. I made Fumas from the histories of a number of Caribbean Latin American spaces nicaragua colombia cuba puerto rico so there's there's a kind of it's a mishmash but historically um cuba would take young students from around africa and some sometimes in latin america and train them right up to university level and then send them back to their countries it was one of the diplomatic kind of initiatives and so when i was a kid there were a couple of older kids that they didn't disappear. They went to Cuba. We knew they went to Cuba, but basically we didn't see them for ages um, because they went off to study. A few came back maybe 10 years later as marine biologists or doctors. And also I know from when I visited Cuba, maybe 16, 15, 15 years ago, um, some of them stayed. That was of interest to me. And I do like to always keep the connection between the Caribbean and Africa front of mind to when I can um, keep a little bit of Ghana in what I do because Ghana has been so important to who I am. Even though I do have very hybrid origins, Ghana is where I grew up. Junior travel while well, he's moved from, and you've spoken about the transition of some people, mate, of the people that you knew. What's interesting is for Azuka is that somebody's making a transition from or journey from a, a real place to a fictional uh place yeah why did you i mean it's very much based on real yeah. locations real geography real culture why did it have to be uh fumas i guess so i mean fictional spaces actually are actually a feature of my novels so in tale of the bluebird we are in a real ghana but the village doesn't exist so it exists in a region where there are villages and there's a, an imaginary village. And it's similar with this. It exists in a region where there are islands and it's an imaginary island. And the reason I do that is because I like the work to be about the ideas and not about geography. Because what I find is sometimes when you write about real spaces, people start to try to imagine themselves there. Or maybe if they visited there before, they'll say, well, that wasn't in that corner or that's not how I remember it. Whereas if you create a fictional space, your readers, whoever you know, you're telling the story to, 
just comes with you and they look at everything with fresh eyes. It's also why I slightly adapted the names of the, the main um, economic powers in the book, rather than making it USA, I made it USAS and, you know, and USSR became USAS as well. Obviously, because I'm a poet, it's a play on words, but it's also because when you do that, people remove the kind of emotional um, reactions that they might have built over years to certain spaces and what they might represent. Interesting. Uh, that's that's so interesting. Um, yeah, the tale of the bluebird kind of felt like a postmodern kind of crime novel in a way with the kind of fictionality of it uh yeah sort of highlighted there but does it is it there to sort of alienate the reader or or does it in fact create relatability in a different way i think it creates relatability i also think it certainly for me evokes nostalgia because when i was reading as a kid or when you read as a kid you you have the least exposure to the world but it's also when we are most kind of enamored of stories and most kind of in awe when we when we read the story because everything is new to us and i think that by creating fictional spaces it allows older readers to experience that again to say hey actually i don't know let's let's just go with this and we're not used to that because we live in a world increasingly where we want to control everything even the way we age you know we want to we want to control absolutely everything so it's not instinctive anymore to just let yourself go but i hope that in fictional spaces the effort of trying to keep up becomes so much that you eventually just say hey let's go what's striking is in that first as soon as you pick up the book is is that narrative voice and it talks about um our island is that is that is that somebody bringing someone in to this place is it is it the yeah. kind of yeah it's a it's a yeah, welcome it's it's camp. like yeah. you're coming to our house come in to our house let me show you around so i mean that's one way of reading it there are other people who might think well if you say our then i'm not in it again going back to to childhood you know you take a child to a new space yeah they'll kind of try, try wonder for a little bit try to figure out where they are but once they feel any kind of comfort they just go crazy they just kind of own the space and they run around um and i i think for me storytelling is is very much about enjoying yourself and letting go and i do that myself even in my writing process it's because it's it's, a, it's an island that is so sort of ravaged by ideological tensions to some extent and it's a place where there is this as cuba is and was you know to some extent there are very hard dividing lines between what is ours what isn't ours um and that's such a really well for me that's a it's a really interesting tension that you set up by uh creating this place that is that is so um yeah, bringing, bringing people in, I guess, bringing the reader in, at, at least. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about Junior's relationship with Ghana. So Junior goes to Fumaz at the age of 13. And for many of us, that is just the cusp of when we start to become ourselves. Um, Junior's relationship with Ghana is kind of fractured because of that. Because he moves just at the time when he would have begun to define himself in relation to where he was or um, and have these kind of really um, formative experiences in becoming an adult, so to speak. So there's a lot of history in Ghana. There's family in Ghana. There are memories in Ghana, there are childhood memories in Ghana. But the place where he's defined himself in relation to the world has been Fumaz. So his relationship with Ghana is very much through his family. 
And so that's that's the bond that ties him. And I think we all we all have these to very very varying degrees, even if we stay in one place, because the relationships. I mean, I still know people I, that I met in primary school, but our relationship is very different from the relationships I have with people I went to secondary school with, and the people I went to university with. Um, and those relationships can be reformed at different stages, but their starting points are those very particular slants. And I think it, it defines it defines those relationships. And I so I think I like to think that no story ever really ends. So Yunio's relationship with with Ghana is going to evolve, but based on his last visit to Ghana that we experience in the novel, there's a kind of he feels like he's he's almost like a tourist. Yeah, that's the so what you do is you, you kind of treat us to I, I mean I don't know how you do it because it's such a it's a short book. Uh, but there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of history within there, and, and you sort of jump around, don't you, in, in timelines? And one moment that really stood out for me is that where he goes back, and it's the independence celebrations, and it, it feels to be a little bit of a distance from the proceedings, doesn't he? It, it yeah. doesn't seem to be registered for him in, in a perhaps a way that it feels like it, I don't know should do or or wants to. Uh, you know, I think the independence is 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 also like a another layer of complexity because it's that thing of there's a ceremonial independence and then there's actual independence and it, you can't say for certain that a lot of post-colonial countries actually have actual independence because exploitation still exists and exploitation is in the background of this novel you know the colonial exploitation is in the background of this novel it's not at the forefront because it's about the lives of the people who are living and it's not about the global politics per se and that's why I have peopleism instead of socialism, because it is about people. It's about how it affects how people live. And um, and so I think his distance is partly because he doesn't live there, but also having lived in a different space where they are beset by these tensions. He's looking at these celebrations. I mean, obviously, it's not said, but it's like, what does it really mean to be independent? The tone just seems to change a little bit. It does, it yeah, yeah. Very kind of, you know, is it something to celebrate to an extent? The mm. kind of history of it and what it what it relates to. But what does freedom mean to to Union and the characters in this novel? Do you think? I, I think it's something that you know he's still contending with, and I think you know even when if you even when you look at his relationship with the band and how he comes back to music after you know he he loses his his fiance. Um, he goes to do something separate from the band as much as it's not like he doesn't love them and he doesn't feel part of them, but he needs to do something separate, isolated himself to, to come back in the same way that even though he shared grief with his in-laws, he also needed to be separate from them. So I think it is a thing that he is contemplating through, throughout. For me, it mirrors probably the way that I see my life. And I, and I think for most people, if we have time to think about life, it's this, it's the same things that we'll be thinking about you know we do have the freedom to make decisions but if you make those decisions and you don't consider anybody else then you're a sociopath but then in order not to be a sociopath it means that you are to some degree constrained so you're never completely free um <laughs> you know um yeah he lives in a country where they're very proud of their independence but they they're under a very authoritarian regi regime they make things work but it's not ideal. And yeah, in Ghana, you know, so when he gets back to Ghana and his father meets him and they're driving and you look at even the way that the city is structured, 
um, the the most expensive houses are where the colonial authorities used to live. You know, it's still got that. That's part of the the economic landscape of a place, even you know, 50, 60 years after the colonial, you know, well, that particular colonial encounter. It, there's a kind of a, it seems, do correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like it's a bit of an echo in terms of the choices that the individual makes, Union, for instance, and the choices that, that are made within Ghana, not Ghana to extent, but the, you said, yeah, the, the richer areas are still these, that were traditionally the colonial um, yeah. colonial households. What, what dynamic do you think that is? I think essentially... We have we have an issue with destroying things as human beings, um, and and it's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, we we quite willfully destroy some things because we're seeking other things. So you know, if you look at how ruthless we are in the pursuit of oil, <laughs> we're quite happy to destroy um, that. But then we'll say, well, we can't throw away petrol engines because we've invested so much. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, you know, so that we won't destroy, but we'll continue to destroy the environment in order to make that persist. So, you know, so there are always these tensions. And I think in colonial spaces, what tends to happen is, or post-colonial spaces, is people are being educated. People are going to school. They're being educated in the language and traditions of the colonial power. When people become independent, they say, we don't want to, we don't want to reverse the education process for the for the kids so we're just going to carry on so then you end up educating everyone to actually behave like the people who colonize them so effectively are you coming out of colonialism or not <laughs> um, and it's the same thing with with the the wealth the, the the rich areas the infrastructure is there so people are going to move in they're not going to raise it to the ground and start again what you end up with is the people who have influence and education and power move to those spaces and they create, they continue to improve the infrastructure. So those places remain the centers. Um, so unless there's a hurricane or something that, that, that takes everything down, which can happen in the Caribbean, <laughs> um, then you're left with what you had. Yeah, well, I mean, what do you see your role as then in that as a writer? Do you see your role as to sort of open up these debates, give answers to these debates? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't presume to have answers, but, I do consider a novel, a book of poems as the opening of a conversation rather than a completion of something. So, you know, I'm not enamored of like, I, I don't need to write a totally perfect novel, but I, I always want to write a novel that will have people thinking and that can have people thinking for generations. So, you know, I, I'm always really stunned when I travel and I find people still reading Tale of the Bluebird and saying, oh, this made me think of this. And, and I hope the same thing happens for Asuka because actually that's what I aspire to as a writer. It's, I'm, I'm a conversationalist. I love conversations. Yeah, and, and that's what does feel like, uh, what that's, that's what it feels like in your novel. It's, it's a global novel. It's, and there's ripple effects felt through history, through geography, yeah. through time. I'm a great believer that the, the subconscious does way more work than the conscious. And so when I'm writing a novel, I kind of write down the kinds of ideas I want to explore. And, and so nature was a big part of it for me because I was looking at how, you know, the problems that we have as human beings, um, if we just look to nature, sometimes we would find solutions. We talk about migration, but seeds migrate all the time. So it was one of the things that I kind of was looking at with, with the novel in the way that, you know, if a plant ends up on a new land, it fixes its roots and it grows and it might grow differently based on the constraints of the place. So, 
you know, um, a mango tree will not grow the same in a place with high winds because it's going to want to like huddle down, um, but it still grows. And in the same way, when we move, we, we also do that, you know, even as travelers, um, depending on how much of a language, how much of the language of a place, you know, when you travel, you're going to behave differently. So we do that instinctively all the time. And yet our rules and regulations and laws are completely against this kind of organic movement that we actually do instinctively on an individual basis. I mean, you obviously sound like a, a well-traveled person yourself, but I mean, when does, there's a difference, isn't there, when, you know, when the environment does not allow you to sort of go back to that metaphor, does not allow you to, to grow yeah. or adapt. And the reality is every space is limited in its own ways, but I think we compound these things by, um, by borders. I mean, traveling with a British passport post-Brexit, right? It changes your experience. You go, you arrive in France and everybody's going through one channel and you're going through another channel and it takes you extra time to get out. <laughs> that extra time may not be much, but it's still something. It, 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 it affects what you're able to see in this space. Because if you get out 20 minutes later and a, there's been a convoy of some interest to you, you've, you've missed it. So your entire holiday changes. I mean, obviously these are minute things, but they are still things. I, I, I once met um, a guy who was flying from Italy to, to, to Ghana and he had crossed the Sahara and he'd survived and it was a harrowing journey. And he was going back to Ghana for the first time in 25 years, 25 years. He'd missed his mother's death and funeral, his father's death and funeral. And I said to him, if you didn't have to struggle to get your papers regularized before you could travel, would you have stayed in Italy? And he said, no. He said, I only needed to make some capital and I would have just gone back as, as soon as I, I made it. And so what struck me in that conversation is actually some of the immigration problems we have are actually because we have such stringent immigration rules. Because for a lot of people, as used to happen before the colonial plunder, they would travel because they needed something. And once they got it, they'd go back to where they wanted to get to. Or they might settle if they felt like, you know, for some reason that was a better space for them. But actually, majority of people will go back to what's familiar once they have what they need. That could have been a, his story could have been a completely different story in terms of the economics of Ghana, for one thing, and also the economics of Italy. <laughs> so, you know, it's just little things like this. These conversations that I have are the kinds of things that sit in the background when I'm writing. Think, think about the in the in the media, isn't it, about um, the painting over the um, the Disney murals that are in the immigration center? Yeah. It's just such a callous. Yeah inhumane way of treating people and it that's the other extreme isn't it that yeah. kind of well it's criminalization of of people that are in, yeah. in, innocent by, you, by you, you, you dehumanize people so you can treat yeah. them worse basically yeah. hey there just a quick message from me and just to say if you're really enjoying today's podcast i'd be really grateful if you left a review on your favorite podcast provider the Rippling Pages is all about letting writers talk about their craft so that you and other listeners can learn more about the art of literature. Leaving a review increases the reach of the podcast and hopefully means that more people will hear about the writer's work. Thanks very much, and it's just great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit more about this story that's sort of the centre of it, which is Junior. 
and uh, Emelina. And yeah. at the heart of this this novel, uh, we've we've to some of the wider things, but at the centre of it is um, a love story. Yeah. I mean, would you describe it as a love story? Yeah, I certainly would. I mean, yeah, I wanted to kind of mirror the love that we can have for a land and the love we can have for a person. So on paper, Junior should be meant to be in Ghana. And that's the, that's the place he should love and he should spend his... He's gone to Fumaz not expecting to and knowing his problems um, or the things that he has problems with in Fumaz. But he's in love. He's falling in love with, 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 with Fumaz. And that's where he's probably going to end up staying. And in the same way, you know, he has his kind of um, relationship with Loretta, um, which could be his Ghana. And Melina is his Fumaz. Yeah, it's a love story. It's a way of exploring love for for the land, love, loving community, you know, his brotherhood, which is the band, um, and then, you know, kind of romantic love as well. So I'm exploring love on, on a number of levels. Uh, so it's a love story, even I like to think of it as a coming to love story because it's, he does go through a journey to come to love. So the way he loves his, you know, his, his, his little farm in Fumaz, the seeds of that actually come from when he was in Ghana and they had the drought. So it's a way of kind of exploring the interconnectedness of things as well. And the love in the band is out of sharing food initially. Um, obviously, the love of music unites them as well. But And Emelina, um, the Emelina Junior connection, particularly particular relationship is a vehicle for exploring how we belong to a specific space or place, which is Fumaz. And Emelina's roots are in Fumaz, is born elsewhere and comes to it. And again, she loves it in spite of herself, you know, in spite of what her grandfather, um, for instance, might want. And yeah, and all the other opportunities she might have in use as this is the space that she she falls in love with. And Junior comes to it as as a student initially, and he grows into it. And because he is the face, one of the faces of the most famous band of the island, the unasked question is which of them belongs more? But because actually belonging doesn't work like that. You know, um, I grew up with my siblings in Ghana and we all belong to Ghana in different ways. And we all, we all manifest Ghana in different ways. You know, my, my older brother speaks um, one extra language that I don't speak. I mean, Ghana has 65 odd languages, but my older brother has one language that I don't have. So it means that our experience of Ghana is different simply because of that. Because when you go into a bustling marketplace, I'm picking up three languages, he's picking up four, <laughs> wow. in addition to English, right? Um, it also means that if he travels and he's in an what we, you would call an expat space, maybe we're in Canada somewhere, and we encounter somebody who speaks Dangbe and he can speak Dangbe and I can't speak Dangbe, he's going to relate to them in a different way. So, yeah. you know, there are all of these degrees of, of belonging that we all have, you know, you know, I've grown up largely in London. I still feel very connected to the North of England. I was born in Lincolnshire, went to, went to university in Manchester. So my relationship to England is very different from my cousins who've lived every moment of their lives in London. 
I can talk to them. I can do the whole London thing. I can talk about all the places where we played football and went to party and stuff like that. But I also have a different vocabulary. Um, you know, if I say Hacienda, it means nothing to them. And it's gone now, of <laughs> course, it's a hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so ultimately, this is what I learned in writing the book, is that we, we have these connections. And rather than one place owning us or claiming us, we actually then belong to all of these spaces. And we know how to exist within them. And we, we know how to shift um, within them and, it, and find a home in them. Reading, reading the novel, listening sort of here, it, you know, the world is a, be a better place without, without sort of having to embody this sense of needing to fit somewhere or feeling fixed somewhere. Thinking about how then you sort of structure your novel with all this sort of going on. Thinking back to your previous novel, which had this kind of, it was kind of this, crime story so to speak but obviously there's yep. a lot more going on than that does it start off with the plot does it start off with this sort of relatively simple cessation of events in a novel or do you kind of come at it with all these kind of different debates going on so if, if i do any plotting it's a kind of topics plotting i'm like these are topics that i i would like to cover but i don't have a space for them in the plot or i don't plot them i just think these are these would be interesting things, and and they will have they will add kind of layers and dynamics to it. I usually have the the seed of something, the seed of of a character or a plot. So with Tale of the Blue Bird, I had the story, I had that story, um, and I thought of all the things that it could embody, and then I I, I had to figure out how to tell a story that's already happened and make it interesting, and that's the point at which I thought you know what, I'm going to make this a hybrid and make it a, a detective novel because then you have the tensions that that form gives you. And the moment I made that decision, it then gifted me with so many other things because of the, you know, because of that particular dynamic and the people it brings into it, you know, people in authority, etc. With um, Asuka, similarly, I had literally the first image um, where, where, you know, somebody's watching somebody playing and, well, he's playing and he's, he's looking at Emelina and she's watching him. That's the image that I had. And then I started to expand from that. And once I'd made a couple of decisions, I mean, first of all, when I had that image, the music I had in my head was very much kind of within the salsa song. So I thought, oh, interesting. I kind of write over a long period of time um, in, in the sense I keep little notebooks and I just write notes. So when that came to mind and I had that sound, I remembered um, visiting Cuba, wanting to go into a salsa club and not having the right shirt and somebody walking by and saying to me, um, do you want to switch shirts with me so you can go to the club? And then tomorrow you can come to dinner at my house and get your shirt back. And that brotherhood, in that moment of myself coming from Ghana, being in Cuba on holiday, and he just seeing me on the street. And I thought, okay, there's something there, you know, um, I'm going to play with that. And once those two things came together, I started to kind of create the world within which all of this could happen. But in that is the fun, is, is how do you tell the story if you create a fictional space? Because so that... The fictional space comes almost automatically with my novels. But once that came and I started to think of how to create a fictional space, 
then I start to think about the larger kind of politics of imperialism and the part that Spain plays in it and how in the Anglophone world, we often don't think about the Spanish role. I mean, the, Fr the French role we do because they're, they're, they're very, they are closest neighbors and, um, and rivals in all things um, <laughs> neo-colonial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that's essentially the nucleus of it. And because it was a fictional space, I had to tell the history of the island. And so I needed a, 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 a narrator that could have that kind of age. And I, I, I don't actually always reveal the narrator, but I have to know in my head who's narrating. I imagined um, an olive tree because olive trees have like incredible um, lifespans. <laughs> so I figured, okay, an olive tree would be a migrant to the Caribbean and would have enough life to tell the story. And so essentially, I imagine this narrated by the olive tree that sits on the roof, um, on Junior's roof. Um, and so that is, the, <laughs> that is the point of view. And the moment I thought about that, it then allowed me to, to bring in all the environmental concerns I wanted to have and also the ability to, to know everyone's stories because trees gossip when, when the wind goes. Um, and so for me, you know, as a poet, that just kind of <laughs> opened up all these possible spaces of, oh my gosh, and they can hear that. They can, and Plots and seeds of ideas, you know, the novel is about plots and seeds of land and, and, the, yeah. and trees and because um, it's about the kind of recultivation and revitalization of uh, which is where the novel lends its name from, Azuka, which is yeah. sugar, isn't it? There's a, there's a very intelligent aspect to all this. There's a very kind of logic, not logical, but there's a thinking, mm. there's a process, isn't there? How how important are those kind of like feelings for writing a novel like this? I think I think they're really important because they tell you about the power of humanity. You know, the fact that this was 15 years ago, and I remember it so vividly, is because it's a particular human moment in a space that we are conditioned to think that when we go to a space like that, coming from the West, we are in a position of superiority. To experience humanity, you have to have faith. You have to make these leaps of faith. And I think things like that are really vitally important for the feeling of a novel, because even the writing of a novel is an act of faith. You know, I didn't start it knowing how it would finish. People had relationships I didn't expect them to have. And all of that is imagining these characters and then having faith that the characters you've imagined can actually take on a life of their own. And you have to trust that. So there's a great deal of trust that these moments that you experience in real life gift you. But yeah, it's, it, you know, there is about the land. It's about the, it's about the sugarcane and it's, it's about, um, it, and I don't know if it's related to that feeling, but it's about, tension between sort of growing growth on a literal level and yeah. sort of not growing and I, I i don't know if it i wondered if it tied into the sort of sense of um you know and who he is as a man to some extent he sort of seems to be a person that, in terms of the kind of physicality of being a person in the world he seems to sort of live and die by the, the progression of of this sort of crop growth and, but I think it's also, it's also forced on him. You know, there's, there's something about having to leave home at an age like that. It forces you to have a growth spurt, so to speak, not physically. You know, you, you do. 
have to grow into a new space and you have to grow within the constraints of that space. So even his name comes out of the constraint of the space that he's in. And um, rather than fight it, he embraces it. Um, and I think that's really, that speaks to faith, that speaks to, you know, adaptation, that speaks to recognizing other people's humanity. There's a, there's a lot in there. And, and of course he experiences a lot over there because also going into that space, he encounters other people from different spaces who carry their traumas with them, which he witnesses. And, and all of that informs who he becomes. He also, as we talked about, it's very formative years and he encounters this philosophy that he totally buys into. Later, there's some cynicism that comes in because he realizes how the world works. But that, that's all part of growth. It's like, it's like pruning. It is a short novel, but there's a lot, of, as you probably can tell from our conversation, there's a lot of history. You can, you can finish it and you can go straight back, straight back to the start. Uh, so with no kind of without feeling fears by it it sounds like you'd um you'd, you'd have a good memoir in your uh, knee i hope you don't mind my saying <laughs> based on these experiences but uh the first series of, of this podcast we had a couple of flip tie poets on uh we had Catherine lockton and uh samatai elmi so with flip tie obviously as you said at, at the top we we are known for poetry um we're trying to do a bit more fiction and i'm looking at um some trans some translation work uh, yeah, one of the one of the most preeminent publishers in the UK is publishing diverse writing and diverse poetry, and been on the scene for over 20, 20 years now. So uh, yeah. yeah, get on get onto that as well after this. Azuka is out now. It's published by uh, Peepal Tree Press, uh, based uh, up here in the great city of Leeds, where I also live. So go out and buy it. Uh, but yeah, it's out now, and, and it, all that remains to say is, uh, Nee, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the Rippling Pages podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Nee for joining me for today's episode. And of course, my biggest thanks to you as well for listening to the latest episode of the Ripley Podcast. Join me next time when I'm joined by Leslie Smolin to talk about the life and work of photographer Rodney Smith.